0: Offers a very wide and varied range of career opportunities. And with that in mind, from time to time in the podcast series, we focus on the career path taken by a senior practitioner who's become synonymous with a particular specialism. This time, I'm joined by Stephen Dando. An award winning HR with nearly 30 years in the business, Stephen is best known for overseeing mergers, big mergers. The integrator, as he's come to be known, is currently chief HR officer at the news and financial information giant, Thomson Reuters. But he's now on the brink of a move to Bain Capital in the US, which will see him tackling very different challenges and dividing his time between London and Boston. Well, look, Stephen, thanks for joining us. Your career has included stints at some of the largest companies in the UK, hasn't it? I mean, Thomson Reuters, before that Ferranti, Guinness, which merged with Grand Met to become Diageo and of course the BBC, it seems like a seamlessly planned career, has it been? Are you a planner?
1: I am a bit of a planner, but not really in terms of my career, I don't think. Um, So I would say there's been more luck and good fortune in in some of those names. Um, I had a sort of sense of where it was good to start a career in HR. I started in the car industry, Um, but that was probably about as planned as it got, really.
0: And from there... I suppose what sounds like the big break to me was when you were offered a job in, it was training and development, wasn't it, with United Distillers, which was part of Guinness?
1: Yes, they had been planning to hire me into a generalist HR role. And at the last minute, the newly appointed HR director there asked to just see me to kind of, I suppose, rubber stamp the appointment almost. Right. And uh, we got chatting. And uh, after a while, he said, well, why, why are you coming to do this job? I've got a much better idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> he pointed me off at this training and development job. But uh, presumably
0: you didn't know much about training and development at that stage, did I knew you? I
1: very little about training and development. Was that not a problem? Well, y- you know, I wondered uh, whether it was a problem, but his attitude, which, um, you know, I kind of admire, was, first of all, he understood that the reason I wanted to join United Distillers was to be in a company that really cared about development, people development, and that was something I had been missing. And I, I think... You know, for him, the ideal was somebody who was passionate about people development, who had a good generalist HR background and who was, as he saw it, unencumbered with lots of ideas and baggage and experience. He preferred the idea of somebody who could come to it fresh with you know, new ideas uh, and who was going to get a lot out of you know, learning something new.
0: Then we come to the first merger you ever saw, don't we? Because Guinness got together with Grand Met to become Diageo. Tell me about that. It was big, wasn't it?
1: It was. It was then, I think I'm right in saying, the biggest merger in British corporate history, I mean, at the time the deal was done. Um, How many
0: people are we talking about?
1: I mean, tens of thousands. And I was lucky in the sense that um, I had been doing the management development, what we now tend to refer to as talent, uh, the management development job um, for United Distillers, which was one of the two divisions of Guinness. Um, And for various reasons, which were really mostly down to good fortune, I ended up uh, going into the group talent job uh, for Diageo, which was and it was a great time to be doing that job because here we were putting the two companies together. Lots of issues, both about people going into key jobs, so a very interesting time. But also, and I think more profound in a sense, was the the need to create the the architecture for building talent for the new group because both companies had a tradition of talent development, and the question was how we were we going to bring all of that together and create one Diageo way of building talent.
0: And Presumably you were learning on your feet there, were you, not having tackled anything quite like uh, that before? I was
1: learning on my feet in the sense I'd never been through an integration uh, on that kind of scale. I mean, that was a completely new experience. Um, and I think uh, I'm a great believer that the first time you go through a really big-scale integration, you know, you just, there's a massive amount of learning. So, yes, that was completely new.
0: What were the big challenges, the big unexpected challenges, perhaps, I should ask you?
1: Well, I think, as you've rightly pointed out, if it's the first time you've been through a, you a know, large-scale merger, frankly, it's all a bit uncharted territory. But I think, you know, getting to understand, you know, a whole new group of people and a slightly different culture. Some might say a very different culture, but a different culture and understanding how to bring the two together. I mean, it's a complex task, but it's one of those things you just get on with. I mean, there's a huge number of people all kind of scratching their heads at the same time, trying to figure out some pretty complex issues. It's very hard work, but it's also very stimulating and enjoyable.
0: And all in a blaze of publicity. I remember the press coverage at the time. It was huge. It
1: was. I mean, it was a big deal. You know, a lot of people were talking about it. I think um, mostly we were just uh, sort of trying to get to grips with the size uh, of the thing and the many issues that we needed to resolve along the way.
0: How long did you stay at Diageo after that? Because you moved to the BBC then, didn't you?
1: So it was 2001 that um, the BBC opportunity came along.
0: Why did you move then? What prompted the move? Did you feel that you'd learned as much as you could there?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think I was beginning to feel that there wasn't going to be, you know, the right next step for, for me there. That's just a natural thing that, uh, a point that is often reached. And, you know, I was approached about the BBC job and I went to meet the somewhat unforgettable Greg Dyke. Um, <laughs> a um, big character. A big character. Head
0: man at the BBC at the time.
1: Yeah, well, he'd been there for, I think, I don't know, nine months or 12 months perhaps, long enough to know what the challenge was all about. And his vision and his ambition for the BBC was very compelling.
0: Now, you were there, I think it was Director of People was the job, wasn't it, 2001, for about five years, am I yeah, right to say, like at the BBC? And it was leadership, you introduced the Leadership Programme. Well, there, so we? I, w-
1: I was HR Director, so I had responsibility for all things related to HR and the people and organisational side of life at the BBC. The Leadership Development Programme you're referring to was one particular initiative as part of a, a big culture change that we were going through uh, that Greg Dyke had initiated called making it happen. One of the things we did as part of that was to to launch a leadership development initiative, which was probably bigger in scale than anything we had done before.
0: Was it very different being at the BBC from DRG? Was the, the culture entirely different?
1: Yes. <laughs> in what way? Um, in lots of ways. I mean, the BBC obviously is a publicly funded organisation. It's uh, you know it's full of talented people who care passionately uh, about the ethos of public service broadcasting and and the BBC's core purposes.
0: And as you say, Greg Dyke was a very big personality. He was in full flow at the time, you know, wanting to get things very, very changed at the BBC. It was a tricky time as well, because this was the time of the David Kelly scandal, the Hutton Report, all sorts of difficulties. It must have been a very challenging time to be there
1: well so that the the hutton crisis came um probably about 3 years after i joined the bbc so we had the making it happen culture change initiative in full flow by then um which was a very energizing change program i mean that really drew you know hugely on uh, the sort of commitment and energy that people who worked there felt for the bbc and the appetite for positive change uh, and it was really about driving creative renewal and and a lot of very positive things to do with, you know, what fuels the BBC, if you like. And you're right, the Hutton crisis uh, came along sort of halfway through that um, and was, of course, a major issue. I mean... Mm. um, I mean, the
0: organisation came very much in for, you know, massive criticism, became very entrenched and dug down, and that must have been tricky, given that you were hitting people then.
1: Yes, I mean, it was... was, um, I think most people would say it was the biggest crisis the BBC had ever faced, has ever faced. Um, It resulted in pretty uh, profound and unplanned change at the top of the organisation. First, the resignation of Gavin Davis, the chairman, and shortly after that, literally within 24 hours, the departure of Greg Dyke as Director General. That was a, that's a pretty dramatic moment for any organisation to lose the top two people. Pretty dramatic um, for you too. Uh, <laughs> pretty dramatic for me too. How did, um, how did
0: you deal with that? Well, you,
1: you know, you're dealing with a sort of multi-dimensional thing. I mean, this is first of all, the the whole organisation is massively in the spotlight. Emotions are running very high. People at the BBC. Uh, cared a great deal about Greg Dyke as a leader, he was he was very popular, and was in the middle of a, a change programme that uh, was gaining traction, if you like. So, you know, the first sort of challenge we had was uh, thousands of our people taking to the streets to protest about what had happened because the Hutton verdict had been delivered, but not everyone, I think it's fair to say, agreed with that verdict, and that became clear in the days that followed. Public opinion, I think, was quite divided about it so it was a pretty tumultuous time
0: so as the man in charge of HR there what did you have to do at that moment in in practical terms because you had an organization you say, in a tremendous state of flux
1: it's a period of crisis and uh, you have to do what feels appropriate and there's no rule book or uh, guide that can sort of help you through that the first thing we did was to convene the extended leadership group of the BBC which is a group of I don't know, 150 top executives in the BBC, you know, we got them together in a room to talk about what had just happened and what it meant for the organization um, and to begin a dialogue about what that suggested for the leadership that we all needed to bring to help settle the organization down and move forward. Normally an event on that scale at the BBC would take months of preparation and scripting and planning and you know, the high production values of the BBC, and here we were getting this group together at a moment's notice. And it was a very emotional event, actually. I Um, mean,
0: everyone had to behave like a corporate at that point, didn't they?
1: I'm sure that's right. I mean, uh, perhaps that was challenging for some people, I don't know. But I I think people followed their instincts. There was a a tremendous kind of sense of coming together and, and needing to understand and make sense of what had happened. And to begin to get a, a kind of collective sense about what was now important and how to move forward. And how to, I mean, you know, all eyes were on this group. Um, uh, and it, it was, I think, fair to describe as a as a very important leadership moment for that whole
0: group. Let's move on to another merger experience and the whole Thomson Reuters experience. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I joined Reuters, um, Reuters PLC, in 2006. And ten months after I joined, we announced the Thomson Reuters deal. So, uh, under which it was proposed that Thomson Corporation would acquire Reuters, and uh, we took about I don't know, best part of a year, ten months or something, going through the planning and importantly the regulatory approvals for that deal, and. In 2008, early part of 2008, we completed the deal and brought the two companies together.
0: I mean, this was what a nearly a nine billion pound merger. It was yeah. enormous, oh, wasn't it, it?
1: it? It's a huge deal. Two very large companies coming together um, with uh, some important uh, uh, differences and a lot of complementarity. Um, one of which was that the, the Thomson Corporation, I mean, a very successful and sizable business, but quite. US-centric. Reuters was a smaller business um, but had a much more international footprint. So it was quite interesting bringing the two together.
0: It's what, about 32,000 Thomson staff, about half as many Reuters. Yes. Big cultural differences. Was that the big, the big difficulty or the big well, challenge? Well, yeah, I think you always
1: have that challenge. Um, I mean, there's a complexity in any integration on that scale. I mean, you've just got a very large number of sub projects if you like i mean streams of complex activity everything to do with you know uh, rationalizing uh, customer facing activities strategies systems processes people related issues um, designing the organization articulating the culture you know you name it it's absolutely all there Um, and you know culture difference is part of that you're always bringing two cultures together in some way I would argue that the differences in culture um, were uh, uh, that they were convergent, in other words you could see a way to start to fuse um, the best of the two cultures to create a a much more powerful culture for the new company going forward and that was part of the job, that I believe is a job that takes on this scale anything between probably five to seven years, so I think that job is still not you know fully completed
0: i mean as you say it's a long haul is is there actually a limit to how far hr can go regardless of effort and input towards binding together culturally disparate organizations do you have to accept that ultimately there will be well, first of all i don't think gaps. it's i don't
1: think it's i think hr has got a hugely important role to play in that but i mean this is an issue for all of the senior executives of a business um, everyone has to own the issue of you know, shaping the company and the culture that is going to support the business and its growth. Is there a limit to how far you can go? Well, I don't really think there is actually, but I think there's a limit to how fast you can go. And I think when you're integrating two businesses on that scale, there are things you can accomplish very quickly, uh, and you know, you set aggressive time scales to get lots of important things done, but there are other things that are on a longer time frame. And the deep cultural integration of two businesses, you know, just doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And all sorts of things have to be built and created and aligned um, for you to be able to say that that job is done. I think it's, you know, very far down the tracks now and is, you know, in the latter stages of being completed. But it takes, I mean, that's, you know, already many years.
0: And you put a lot of work into that organisation around talent. That seemed to become very much at the heart of your strategy for the combined group?
1: It, it was. I mean, one of the benefits we had of this 10-month period that I was describing to you where we'd announced the deal, but the deal had not closed and we we're going through various approvals, that can be quite a frustrating period of time. But the upside is that it gives you the the chance, if you seize it, to think through certain things really well, things that you're allowed to talk about at that stage, uh, which are, if you like, not you know commercially off-limits. Right in that domain are things like the organizational issues, the culture, the vision and values that you want to create for the business. We did a lot of that work during that period. So as we thought through what do we want this combined company to be all about, the executive team at the time identified three standout priorities, if you like, three core activities that would come to define the new company. One was was something we called strategy and capital allocation, which is obviously getting clear about the, the, the direction of the company, the strategy, and making sure that the uh, capital resources were allocated exactly in line with that. And some companies are very good at that, others less, so we wanted to be outstanding at that. Secondly was innovation, and thirdly, in no particular order, was talent. Uh, and what we said was that these were going to be parts of the company's new signature, these were things that would truly define it. And part of my job as, as HR director of the company was to make sure that um, talent wasn't just something for the talent team, but that talent was really part of the, the mission of the whole of the HR function. And it's a very energising mandate. You know, people find that, I think, really quite inspiring.
0: I mean, talent, of course, naturally leads to the question of reward, I think it's fair to say you did run into some problems in about 2009, didn't you? The staff rejected a pay offer where 50% of the deal was performance-related. I think the argument at the time was they felt it was unfair because their managers were actually eligible for for big bonuses, 20 to 30% bonuses. Is there a danger if you go too far down the performance-related pay road that you send the message that if you're not talented enough to become senior, you're not valued?
1: I think that danger is always there. I mean, I would just say that what you refer to was, uh, you know, in the context of an organisation employing many tens of thousands of employees, was a relatively small group. So, you know, I wouldn't want that to be seen no, as something that was. No, understood, but it com- raises an interesting question. It wasn't a company-wide issue. That's Indeed. really my point. Yeah. But but back to the main theme. Yes, I think as you articulate a talent strategy, and as you develop, you know, reward plans and other things. It's very important to be both uh, concentrating on the people whose careers, if you like, are moving in a highly progressive direction, but also um, making sure that there is very strong acknowledgement and recognition for people who are making a big contribution, but maybe on a slightly different track. And all companies wrestle with this. All organisations wrestle with this. Well, by
0: its very nature, it's elitist, isn't it?
1: Well, that's right. I mean, it's, you know, you're you're in a sense trying to articulate two sets of messages at the same time. And I don't think they are, uh, you know, mutually exclusive. I think I think you have to wrestle with the challenge of articulating, uh, you know, a sort of more nuanced message. And it, it it's true that most organizations are pretty determined to identify people who they're going to proactively develop in a particular way, who they regard, if you like, as their strongest talent. Um, but that is not at all to say that the contribution made by many others is not extremely important Uh, and you know this is this is part of the complexity of managing a big organization successfully.
0: this leads us very neatly to the move you're making in the new year to Bain Capital because you're going there I think as operating partner you'll be dividing your time between London and Boston this role as far as I can see it's all about talent management isn't it recruiting and developing talent at the most senior levels interesting.
1: It is interesting you're right that the focus is going to be on Management team talent uh, across the portfolio. So, this is not a role that's focusing internally <clears throat> on these issues within the firm, but rather into the portfolio. And I think this is one of their blueprint priorities. You know, they're very keen to uh, further build and develop their capabilities in assessing, identifying, and developing best talent across the whole portfolio. Because they recognise that you know having the very best people uh, in each part of the portfolio is obviously a, a key lever for creating value, and so my my role is going to be to help to build that capability within the firm.
0: Well, obviously, you are joining Bain at a rather tricky time, aren't you? Because I think, as, as some people may know and others won't. It's, uh, it's at something at the centre of a, of a firestorm of political controversy at the moment, isn't it? Because, of course, it was founded by Mitt Romney, the Republican presidential candidate, and is taking a lot of, well, press flack would probably be a gentle way of putting it right now, setting aside the rights and wrongs of that. Yeah. Do you feel that's going to present you with difficulties when you get into your role there? Because this is a big story in the US right now, isn't it?
1: I, I really don't think so, actually. I think that's in the nature of elections. I think these things come and go. You know, When you're at this stage in an election campaign, uh, what the different candidates have done and you know, in different stages of their career is an issue of public interest. Yeah, they um, but
0: they're running TV campaigns saying that Bain capitals is asset strippers. I mean, this is a big story.
1: Look, you know, I think, you know, that is the nature of the political process. You will have a very lively debate like that going on. And I think if, if uh, we had the same issues playing out in a UK election, you'd see the same sort of things. I, th- I think people understand that that's, that's politics. Um, and, you know, this election won't run forever. You and still have a bit of
0: a knack of arriving organisations when they're running. <laughs> step into a well if not a crisis an interesting time (laughs) it's an interesting
1: time but I'm sure people are are not overly distracted by
0: that I mean you've been an HR leader for decades now I'm sorry to press the point but it is a long time what would you say thinking in the broadest terms what would you say the key skills are that you have that have stood you in best stead so far
1: oh that's a hard question look I, I think first of all um particularly if you're in a commercial business, is, is understanding the underlying business model, knowing what makes the organization work, understanding the strategy of the company. Because I think people and organizational plans and strategies don't exist in a vacuum. They have to be relevant. They have to be reinforcing and supporting what an organization is trying to achieve. So that's just fundamental. I think all great HR people need to start by being deeply immersed in the business of their organisation. Is
0: HR getting better at this? It's talked about an enormous amount. Do you feel generally that HRs are getting their arms around that concept? Yes, I do.
1: I think that direction of travel is right. I think most people understand that that's the sort of essential starting point. Um, some people may be better at that than others. But I think if, if you look at most uh, successful HR people or successful HR functions, you will find that that is a factor, that... A lot of the key people there in the h r function are embedded in the business, have a deep understanding of the of the company or the organization and this This is relevant whether you 're in the private sector or the public sector it doesn 't really matter so that you know that 's where I would start i 'd then say really deeply understanding your organization so i 'm really building on that earlier point and you know, developing and designing strategies and solutions that are highly relevant to the challenges it faces. Uh, the distinction I'm drawing is between sort of cookie-cutter approaches. You know, you see a lot of people who go to conferences and events, and they're kind of cruising around trying to pick up the latest idea that they can just transplant into their organization. Now, I have nothing against getting out there and, you know, finding out about good ideas, of course, but, um, you know, it, You really need to contextualise things. You really need to understand what is going to work in your organisation. And that's a lot about understanding the people, the strategic context, the culture, and then being able to use judgment to craft approaches and solutions that work.
0: And creativity.
1: And creativity, absolutely. And, of course, a lot of other things that go along with that in terms of being able to... um, Uh, articulate a vision being able to build credibility with senior line teams and with of course the chief executive but also to inspire an HR function I mean it's it's really important that that people feel that they're in an organization where they can do their best work and where the function and its role is valued and seen as as really creating value uh, longer term.
0: Now you left university I think in 1984 didn't you tail end of a recession here we are again here we are again. Uh, Good choice. Glad you went into HR.
1: Yeah, I've never regretted that for a minute. There was a time, you know, in my sort of late 20s, when I began to wonder whether I would spend my whole career in HR. Um, And I, you know, I, I felt instinctively drawn to the business world. I knew that I was interested in people side of business but i also thought it was possible that i may broaden my base uh, and move into you know other disciplines or come you know uh, general management uh, potentially but in the event you know i i found myself fortunately in companies that just seem to have endless interesting challenges and whenever i might have thought of lifting my head and doing something different there was something else to get my teeth into so here we are i've stayed with it
0: very much for talking to us best of luck with the new move thank you very much